Isn't anyone going to thank me? This is our podcast. Don't you get it? This is Something Who. It's the same podcast as the celebrity ones. And we're on a video call. I love a video call. What is this thing? It's bigger. I mean, it's bigger on the inside. Who the hell are you? You brought us back. Just think, though. Chris Chapman. Toby Haydoke. Stephen Schapansky from Radio Free Scarrow. We're all in the same club now. But we're supposed to be nobodies. Not anymore. But think of something who. The, the podcast it's supposed to become might never exist now. Nah. Special guests bring more listeners to our regular episodes. Different people, but the podcast's the same. You can't know that. And if this podcast changes, the whole of fandom could change. The future of Doctor Who podcasts. No one should have that much power. Tough. You should have left us where we were. Anonymous. Simon, I've done this sort of thing before. In small ways. Showcased some little people, but never anyone as important as this. Oh, I'm good. Little people? What, like like me, Simon and Giles? Who decides we're so unimportant? You? For a long time now, I thought I was just a trier. But I'm not. I'm the winner. That's who I am. The podcaster victorious. And there's no one to stop you? No. This is just wrong, Richard. That's for me to decide. Now, we'd better start recording. Oh, Audacity's all locked up. Still, that's easy. There we go. Recording again. Is there nothing you can't do? Not anymore. I don't care who you are. The podcast of Victorious is wrong. I'm out. This isn't what I signed up for. Goodbye. I'm off too. There are other podcasts. Oh dear. I've gone too far. Is this it? The death of something who? Hello and welcome to Something Who, episode 21. If you found us through our special episodes with Chris Chapman, Toby Haydock or Stephen Schapansky, this is our classic format where we compare a Doctor Who story from the original series and one from the new. This time it's a virus special with 1977's Invisible Enemy and 2009's Waters of Mars. So, hello Simon. Hello Richard. Hello everyone. Hello Giles. Hello, everybody. And also, star of the new Missing Episodes podcast, hello, Paul. Good evening. It's, 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 it's so good you're able to join us. Yes, I'm, I'm still in black and white, I'm afraid. I've got to change the settings after, <laughs> after the other week, but it's fun to let it put you off. <laughs> so, everyone, the invisible enemy. Was it a prawn cracker? Or was it something you didn't really want on? Oh, 
Yeah, so, so yeah, who wants to go first and uh, give us their initial thoughts on uh, Invisible Enemy? It's, it's always tricky. It's always tricky looking back at these stories. Do you do you look at them again with the wonder you had when you watched them the the first time? I I watched. I'm gonna mm-hmm. delight everyone now and take lots of flack away from Richard. I watched this when I was ten originally, and I I <laughs> I loved all Doctor Who stories. I loved all Doctor Who stories with space and the special effects, and mm-hmm. this one even had laser beams as well. So at last, it made a quantum leap forward, and then unfortunately. Along came Star Wars a few months later, and that changed Doctor Who and pretty much everything else ever after that. Mm. This felt a bit strange. I, I I remembered something I thought that was in it that wasn't, and then there were a few other things that I didn't remember seeing at all that were actually in it. So mm. I remember the opening scenes in that space shuttle on its way to Titan, and I, I thought they had lightning effects coming out of the control panel into the eyes of the crew and infecting them. Mm-hmm. And then Horror of Horrors, I didn't remember at all that Leela actually piloted the TARDIS, apparently, although we never <laughs> see it, from Titan mm. to the to the med base on the asteroid. So mm. all sorts of eye-openers in this story for me, Richard. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, it's a hitherto unexpected talent for, for Leela there. I think her character was up in, up in the air quite a bit, really, wasn't it, in this series? Because Robert Holmes and Hinchcliffe had had this grand plan to make her the space Eliza Doolittle and gradually civilise her, in inverted commas, week by week. And um, it seems that Graham Williams didn't really have much interest in that. And although the only obvious sign is that he put her back in her original costume, I think some of that uncertainty carried on in the stories, didn't it? Mm. It's a bit contradictory given that we get that lovely little bit of business near the start with her spelling and her writing her name on the blackboard. Yes, and stuff like that that is clearly alluding to it, and and Bob Holmes was officially still script editor at this point, wasn't he? It's his name on the credits, I believe. Mm-hmm. And yet, yeah, yeah, that's a bit of a, it's a bit of a jolt that uh, she suddenly has the ability to pilot Sardis. But, but that's Doctor Who for you. That's sometimes the plot calls sort of people to better mm, do things, and you just have to mm. squint yes. and let them get on with it. Mm. Well, it's especially true with Baker and Martin, isn't it? Hmm. I mean, any, anything can happen when they're on board. And yeah, absolutely. I've got a very um, soft spot for this for this one. I think I did, don't know why. It, yes, it had a great impression on my my uh, seven year old um, <laughs> self. Uh, in as much as I can remember, typing up vast screeds of the dialogue from memory, pretty much. Wow. The uh, the Tardis the the I hope he's Tardis trained thing and. <laughs> Uh, in particular, obviously stuck in my mind massively, the whole thing, trying to mount a small Amdram production by bullying various members of my family into um, into playing the other parts. Oh, you too? Hmm? Yeah, probably, yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I was a couple of years before that, but yes, I'd, mm. uh, I, I had a similar thing, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, so this one stuck in my, yeah, stuck in my memory and... Probably it is, as Simon said, that that combination of that spaciness and so on that was quite appealing to my seven-year-old self. I'm not sure whether it's the bits that really stand up today, but yeah, we'll we'll come on to that. But I've mm. still got a soft spot for it. Yeah, I'm glad to hear you say that. I've always had a soft spot for this one. I know I would have watched it at the time, but um, I don't I don't have any strong memories, which is odd considering it's got some very interesting visuals. I've got very strong memories of horror of Fang Rock and. 
uh, Image of the Fendal. But mm. but yeah, I think it was quite, yeah, no, it was quite a good era for visuals, wasn't it? Oh. Mm. I think it's one of for me, <laughs> even though it's got a, such a bad reputation, it's one of Baker and Martin's more successful stories. And mm. I know there are it suffers from some of the same problems that they've overreached themselves, which they often do. Mm. From one end of the seventies to the other, they never seem to learn quite what's <laughs> possible <laughs> on a Doctor Who budget, but mm. never stop trying. And mm. and th- again, you mentioned Star Wars earlier. It's often said that this is Doctor Who's answer to Star Wars, K Nine's Doctor Who's answer to R two D two. But it, there's not much chance that it, there was any direct influence, is there? No. It must have just been something in the air at the mm. time. If, yeah. if it was a direct influence, I'm sure they'd have tried a lot harder with certain aspects of it. <laughs> if they'd have caught so um, chunks of chunks of um, medical base falling off the wall barely before K9 shot it, and um, <laughs> people's trousers splitting uh, in fights that's... and things like that, I spotted. <laughs> Does that happen here as well? That's amazing. I thought that was. Oh. I thought we had to wait till um, Corns of Nymon for that. <laughs> Well, the, uh, no, yes, so the, I, the falling off I've the got wall. a. I like this story as well, but again, it's it's seeing it again with, with grown eye, grown up eyes, and then comparing it with everything you've you've seen since then. And sometimes they get away with small miracles with Doctor with the, with the budgets and and some bit of ropey story. And this one had a very good. I think it had a very strong story, but as ever, just as Paul mm-hmm. said, Baker and Martin overreached themselves, unfortunately. And uh, you know, there's some quite big jumps in the story sometimes such as the TARDIS getting mm. from Titan to the medical base and then yeah. poor old canine being able, unable to get over the step into the TARDIS and things like that Yeah, and also mm. showing um, Richard's prawn, prawn in full profile instead of just using angles as well that, that didn't do it any favours either <laughs> mm. well I'm sure there'll be more to be said about the prawn but yeah. that's um, <laughs> Plenty. I mean goodness me it's a, it's, a distinct, it's a large and distinguished not particularly exclusive club the, the world of Doctor Who stories which are let down primarily by their monster mm. <laughs> yes I don't know it's one of the oddest costumes yes. ever so from, on, it's odd, an odd decision on paper to make it look like a prawn yeah. mm. and <laughs> quite well, they must have had plenty of time to realise how immobile the thing was so that it it's has to be supported as it's shuffling yeah. slowly through the corridor it's, it's um, interesting because yes, just, just on that Topic and also on the, on the topic of nostalgia. Before uh, I want to ask Richard what he thought of it, but I part of my nostalgia for it was having the, having the target paperback mm. and reading it exhaustively again and again and again. For some reason, that one, even though it's a typical Terence, hundred and twenty-six page, mm. maybe not even that, maybe a hundred and ten page pot boiler, just mm. again stuck with me and I absorbed it. And the jacket of that, of course, has got. The prawn, but the prawn manages to look sinister, and um, and because it's because it's on, it's got that muddy brown background, mm. and it, it it yeah manages to make it look rather better than it ever does on on screen. That is so true. And, and the one bit where you expect <laughs> the prawn to you know rewatching it, it, I was completely thrown by the fact that we, you just when they actually meet it inside the doctor's mind, in, inside his brain. It's that weird little, you know, pupating thing with a with a single pincer sticking out of it, and you yes. never actually see that. You never actually see the prawn in that murky. No, you don't. Murky mm. kind of, you know, in a in a well lit in a well lit environment. I'm just looking at the cover now, and and you're right. It uh, you're mostly right that it does look a lot more 
sinister and intimidating in the murky background of the picture mm. looming over Tom Baker. But if you have another look, so oh, it, should, it also still... has a rather goofy expression. It looks like it's cross-eyed. Mm. Uh, it looks like it's a drunk prawn staggering mm. around a, in an alleyway at three in the morning. Um, don't all rush off and look at it now. Mm. But <laughs> you'll thank me of course later. That's what I do. <laughs> So, so I came to this but yes, um, on uh, this time round on a, a large wave of nostalgia. I, I uh, picked up Doctor Who Monthly Five Fifty with its nineteen seventy six theme. So it, mm. it's based around the the season one before this, but it's talking about um, Tom Baker and Louise Jameson. So it, it, it's got the same kind of vibe to it, um, and it's an absolutely beautiful piece of work. I mean, the the replica Weetabix cards, the poster mag. I, I had. Those two poster mags that I bought at the Doctor Who exhibition in in Blackpool, either that year or the year before, so so I knew, I know exactly what they were going for with that fold out, and the and the magazine itself has some some rather nice features in it, and um, I mean I, I can't say that I loved this story when I saw it first off. I was probably about ten when it was on, just before maybe nine coming on ten, and, and maybe I was it seemed a bit silly to me at the time. But actually watching it now, um, I, I, I quite enjoyed it, really. The, the the first episode, I thought, was a little bit on the dull side, but the rest of it, I thought, was was quite nice and, and it moved at a good pace. And, and uh, yeah, I, I, I was positively uh, impressed by it this time around. Well, that's nice to know. It's always nice mm. to be able to look back on our 10-year-old selves and say, you didn't know what the hell you were doing, taking everything so seriously. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> you just wait. A few decades will pass and you, you'll have given up. You'd have lowered your standards <laughs> further than you ever thought possible. Yes. No, I think you're right. I think um, you s the the pacing is probably what I like. It does. It's a proper. What is it? It's a proper Doctor Who B movie, and um, mm. Doctor Who often accidentally does Doctor Who B movie just by virtue of not being very good. But here, it's ripping off a B movie. Mm -hmm. uh, don't write in if if you're going to tell me that Fantastic Voyage wasn't a B movie. Uh, you know what I mean. Yeah. It's. <clears throat> it's only yeah it's um it's going for th that and within doctor's usual limits it's achieving it i mean it's achieving some of the harder to pull off aspects such as the the main conceit being shrunk shrunk and then put inside the doctor's bloodstream mm. Mm. all that looks pretty good it does. nice mm. map map paintings and cso uh, combined Mm. Um, it's certainly a much more effective, uh, eff well, it's more effective, but it's a better use of CSO than Underworld, for example. Yeah, yeah, if you're going to go to all that trouble of recording whole episodes on blue screen, you might as well make it somewhere completely fantastical that you couldn't yeah. possibly build for real than make it a cave, mm -hmm. which, which would have looked better and probably been cheaper. <coughs> and, um, but anyway, it's, uh, it moves around, you know, there's lots of locations. Mm. There's a nice big colourful character. I think I complained last time we discussed a Baker and Martin story, that they, there's always a place in their stories for a sort of comedy guest character who never quite came to life. I think mm. the three doctors I was particularly uh, yes. about that. Yeah. But here, Professor Marius says, well, we got a very nice performance, which helps, but yeah. you know, he's a nice, memorable guest character in among all the usual science fiction tropes. Mm. And, and K-9, as an idea, is a is genius. Mm. I do wonder whether that's the Holmes influence whether Bob Holmes is leaning over their shoulders and and tweaking some of the dialogue and, and just making it sing a bit more in places. Than... Yes, I mean, it's entirely possible. Mm. I mean, he didn't do that in every one of their stories. He didn't really 
add much to Hand of Fear. That's, that was, I mean, that's another one where... That was exactly the counter-example I was thinking <laughs> of, actually. So maybe, maybe there's the, the truth is in the middle somewhere, which is that if there's a, he sees the germ of a good idea in a particular character, he'll write it up, hmm. like with Marius. And if there is nothing, Hand of Fear is just Claws of Axos, but without, he, without anyone even as interesting as um, Bill Filer, the CIA agent. Mm. Mm. Yes, yeah. And in brackets, I like Hand of Fear, the hand stuff saves it. Mm. So, um, but you know what I mean. I'm coming from the angle of character yeah. and, um, mm. and dialogue rather than visual spectacle. You need a bit of both. Mm. Well, this is uh, another story with Michael Sheard in it, isn't it? Yeah. I don't know why it took me so long is. to get those words out. <laughs> I, was trying to, I, was, no, I was actually trying to count where we were in his um, six or seven appearances. We're over half, well over halfway through. This by is point, number aren't we? four, maybe? Always reliable. Mm. Oh, yes, of course, Castrovalva and Dalek re- Remembrance after that. Mm. Yeah. Yep. I mean, I mean, this is probably his best part, isn't it? I mean, a lot of the other ones are quite small in the story that they're yeah, in. I mm. guess it's the biggest, isn't it? Mm. And he gets yeah. to play two different parts, I suppose, from you know the, the, the initial one and then the taken over one. Hmm. And he pulls off a similar contrast as he does with the, with the headmaster in Remembrance. Hmm. <laughs> Reliable old Michael Sheard. Yes, the phonetic spelling thing I, I quite liked, but I almost missed. I mean, it, it's it's funny they 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 don't really feature it, do they? I mean, it, I mean it's it's everywhere, but it's in quite small typeface, and if you blink, you miss it. And I, I don't think I noticed it the first time it went out. You know, when I was ten, I suppose. But but this time I I, I saw oh yeah, I see information and whatever mm. it was in, in kind of weird phonetic type. But you know, and it's, section seven. Yes, yeah. but but uh, as I say, you, you you you've got to be concentrating to see it. Hmm. It's strange that um, from a yeah the the visuals of this story in general because I mean it's a Barry Newbury gig, isn't it? It's, yeah, and it's you know the, the the stuff in you know the stuff inside the Doctor's head is is great. The design the design work there in general seems to come off really well. I, I don't know, I mean, you can see what they were getting at with the... Um, I think the Titan base is, maybe, is weak. And you can see where they're going. You can see why the Bial Foundation looks looks as it does. Mm-hmm. I think I think possibly the only... The damning thing about that is just that it feels like it's the... It's the forerunner of an awful lot of very sterile clinical sets that we are going to get over the next few years of Williams and J&T, uh, you know, without the justification. Whereas in this case, okay, you're going for a hospital look. Yeah. And yeah. It, then, it then feels like, do they do they then just keep reusing the same flats again and again? Oh, is this the story where... To... Right, I'm now going to have to admit. <laughs> Has this story got those hexagonal, no, those triangular thingies in the background? Is this where they make their debut? I don't recall any triangular thingies. Oh, okay. The famous bit of set that they reuse again and again in Doctor and Blake Seven and the Adventure mm. Game for the rest of time. <laughs> if it's not it's the Invisible Enemy, then it's another one in this series. Hmm. It may well be. I wasn't looking. Okay. Well, make a note of the time, um, mm. Richard, because you'll need to cut that last minute. <laughs> <laughs> what? What I did notice. We'll save it in the edit. What I didn't notice was that the receptionist 
had obviously been well provided with PPE. She had her gloves and her mask at the Bio <laughs> Foundation. Yes. Yeah, she wasn't going to get infected by anything that came in. Mm. No. Oh yes, of course. We haven't really talked much Very about true. our our linking gimmick. Although, as it's in rather poor taste, perhaps we, should, perhaps we shouldn't. <laughs> well, it, I mean, it, as, as, as we've kind of noted with the nucleus of the swarm, it, it, it seems like it's a virus when it suits them, and then it isn't when it doesn't really. It, it, it doesn't necessarily have all of the features of a, of a virus. Mm. Well, some of the finest brains, even nowadays, still get confused over the precise definition of a virus. Have you seen Donald Trump? <laughs> I mean, no. even, even he... And he's a, a, a genius on these matters. Thinks that you can uh, combat a virus with antibacterial soap. Mm. I'm still I'm looking at pictures of the um, set in the story, trying to spot the particular yes. sort of set dressing that I'm wittering on about, and I can't find it yet. Mm. <laughs> Maybe it was the sun makers. Mm. Simon, help us can out. Make, while can we make Paul's this a regular that? theme? A regular. <laughs> <laughs> How can I assist you, Richard? <laughs> What do you th- what do you think of the of the whole of the whole virus theme? Does it does it work for you? Does it does it kind of make sense? It it was going it again. It's a good it's a, I think it's a good good story overall. It rather you, you got to why did they have to make the virus giant size that that sort of spoilt it slightly? I don't mm. I don't know why they they had to do that. I mean it it could have remained super. It it sort of. It was like the great intelligence almost. It was sort of shapeless and formless and directing everything nicely. Mm. And then suddenly it was mm. wobbling around like a drunk clanger. Mm. And they were having to get <laughs> it, you know, trying to work out a plot device to get it to tighten. Mm. And it Doctor Who produces throughout history have been telling the, the writers, stick a monster in, come, it's all very well, <laughs> but we need a big visible monster. And Baker and Martin make this mistake over and over again. I mean, in Hand of Fear... Well, it's not quite the same mistake, but I mean, turning Eldrad into a big... He's quite a subtle character for the first three episodes, and turning her into a big, booming Stephen Thorne at the end is completely unnecessary, but it mm. just... some They must have this mm. switch in their brain saying, no, it needs a big... It needs a seven-foot-tall yeah. male actor, or a <laughs> prawn, I suppose. I mean, you know... <laughs> and there was a frog in Claws of Axos as well, wasn't there? Mm. Giant frog. True. Mm. Yeah, I mean, what I quite like about the whole virus thing is that it kind of foreshadows the whole computer virus thing by about 20 years in that, you know, they're they're actually, um, you know, it takes over K9 at one point. It also seems to be in some of the systems. So it's, you know, they they describe it as a noetic or or mental virus. It's not not, um, necessarily anything that, um, you know, we're expecting to encounter, but it does seem to also take over technology well, that almost mm. makes up for them being 2000 years late with cloning doesn't it and <laughs> still mm. still using hypodermic syringes and needles hmm. <laughs> although this kill bracken technique bears no relation to them yeah any kind of cloning that we I mean, for some reason it can can clone you with clothes intact and also yes you retain some weird link yes to the um to the person you've been cloned from yeah, I mean, science isn't their strong point, I'd say, with Baker and Martin. <laughs> you know, we, we've already, you know, gone into with the three doctors, the mm. whole black hole thing, um, and I'm mm. sure. Uh, uh, you, you, actually, you you were, you were reasonably happy with the nuclear reactor in Claws of Axos, but um, mm. yeah, you know, I mean, some things are good and some things aren't, I suppose. Uh, once again, though, actually, they've obviously been at least leafing through the pages of their scientific journals because I, 
because we've got um, the fact that Titan has a methane atmosphere. Oh yes, that's true. Which is was fairly fairly fresh information, I think, at the time, and this was before we had a flyby. Mm. So it's not it's not a bad one. It looks the um, the Titan base and stuff. It looks very like some of this Chesley mm. Bonestell space art from the fifties. You know all this stuff that was done to you know that really kind of sold Americans on the vision of what the space race was going to look like. Mm. So it's quite it's quite nice from that point of view. Um, and they they want to know that you know when when we got to Titan it was going to have this murky mm. orange atmosphere everywhere. But mm. Did they destroy just the base at the end, or did they utterly blow Titan out of the sky? Yeah, it's not entirely clear, is it? It sounds like they nuked the entire atmosphere, but I don't <laughs> think they had enough oxygen on yeah. the um, in the in the tanks to have um, to have blown the whole. It's a relatively large lot. moon, isn't it, Titan? It's huge. Yeah, no, it's hu- huge. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. So eventually, you'd run out of methane to. Uh, sorry, you'd run out of oxygen to burn with the methane. Yeah. I like the journey inside the Doctor in Episode 3. I thought Episode 3 was, was the strongest one. And I thought, just as mm. Paul described, I thought they did that very, very well. But something they always do fantastically well with Doctor is explosions. And if they did <laughs> blow up Titan in its entirety, or even that base, that was a bit of a damp squib as far as Doctor Who explosions mm. go. That that looked <laughs> like a wet bonfire night to me. Mm. Yeah. I, I was going to say, before we leave the subject of the realisation of the story, that yeah. it's got... Pe- particularly good model effects hasn't it yes so again it, another small more exclusive club this story is in is though is stories which have much better model effects than they perhaps deserve mm. or that are you know out of proportion to the quality of of the sets or the acting <laughs> whatever mm. uh, again we're going to get another one just a few stories later with underworld mm. which has a very impressive very visually impressive episode mm. one mm. and for all goes mm. Horribly wrong, and um, if they were so good. I mean, maybe I'm alone here, but I, I, I think most people think these are particularly good effects, and mm. it made it slightly bewildering that they chose to redo them all in CGI for the DVD release, and thus it became one of those few stories where they actually made the, the effects worse <laughs> and really shouldn't have wasted their money. Um, mm. I'd say that not in a spirit of criticism, but it was a stupid idea. <laughs> I thought the spacecraft and the opening was was really really good. I'm, mm. I'm sure that shuttlecraft's been reused mm. in Blake Seven, where they're sending Blake off to the to the prison planet. I'm That's sure that the, gets reused. Yeah, I had a feeling it was. Hmm. Was it Ian Schoons? Yes. Because you know it was the luck of the draw who who was doing your effects on Doctor Who, wasn't it? Mm. Same as it was with your costumes and your mm. yes. and your That's practical it. sets. Although it was and always Matt Irvin on Swap Shop, mm. wasn't it? <laughs> mm, yeah, well, I think a young Matt was helping out on this one as well. Right. Oh, this is true. So, but yeah, it's um, it's interesting. I was I, one thing I noticed about this with regard to episode three. It's it is very nicely set up. The whole of whole of episode three is a very nicely self-contained little thing, and it it balances very well considering that you you it sets the ticking clock mm. at the end of the previous episode, and you think, oh, hang on, so this is going to be the entire next episode. But because you're cutting back and forth, it actually doesn't seem too implausible that they mm. have a you know they've got eleven minutes or so total, and you know that plays out over about twenty two minutes of of screen time, and the fact that they then put the the siege sort of thing um, up against it 
it balances very, you know, it balances pretty nicely, I think. Mm. Uh, but the thing that I noticed was that um, this is rather like the Deadly Assassin, and it has this standalone episode three mm. kind of that goes to somewhere completely different. Instead of having the usual episode three longers, yeah, that many stories um, suffer from, of mm. we've got to go on a, you know, we've just got to pad this out because it's too late to get to the um to get to the solution. Mm. They take it to you know to the idea that they you have to go somewhere you know somewhere completely different in order to get you know in order to get the information you need to know for the you know in order to develop what you need for the fourth episode. So I think structurally it's quite quite nicely done from that point of view. Mm. Yes, I mean, if anything, as, as I kind of said earlier, it seems to me episode one's the one that suffers, and, and the the other three, you know, go along quite nicely. I think. I I always struggled as as a boy trying to uh, understand that these episodes aren't supposed to play out in in real time, and so mm. you know when you're cutting backwards and forwards, you're sort of going from the point at which you last saw them and you're coming back again, and mm. uh, but yeah, I mean, I I. Uh, I see that's what that's what they're doing because otherwise the timing doesn't make sense. Very good. Mm. Well, I think we can all agree that Invisible Enemy has an episode for everybody, even <laughs> if even if few are going to like the whole thing. Mm. I, I like the fact that um, Marius goes off to find Lo, because you know it's nice to see people being thorough about the possibility of of infection in a yes, this location. is true. Yeah, he, 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 he sort of thinks, yeah, haven't we better just check that down and make sure that nothing nasty yeah. happens? Do some proper contact tracing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I felt t- I was getting um, uh, something of the same feel about inside the Doctor's brain as as. Um, Planet of Evil. I mean, it's not as, as as impressive as the jungle set, but it, it has some of those same kind of slightly fantastic uh, feels mm. to, to it. Yes, yeah. Is that a Barry Newbury job? Um, no, that's the other guy, isn't it? It's the... Well, Ray Kuzik. <laughs> <laughs> Roger Murray Leach? Right, that's him, yes. Oh, okay. Mm. Yeah, mm. there's definitely a similarity there. Hmm. Some. Frederick Jaeger was in it as well, wasn't he? Freddie Jaeger. Oh, of course, yes, yeah. Turns out in both, quite rapidly. Yeah, that's quite a rapid reappearance. Hmm. Yeah, I was, I was just thinking, it was quite interesting to watch. And I'm not sure what the truth is about the whole thing about when Canine was, into, you know, when when they decided to keep Canine on, as with all these companion stories, you know, whether it's really whether it really was a late decision as is claimed in order to allegedly in order to justify the costs of making the thing in the first place um <laughs> seems they claim that they had to they refilmed the ending like they did with jamie all those years earlier oh i don't know about that or, but no uh, i don't that. know it seems a bit yeah it sounds a bit of a made-up excuse given that you then you know it's not like you it's not that you get the pop, pop for free you still have to employ john leeson every week <laughs> <laughs> So you're still adding an extra cast member. I think you wouldn't, you wouldn't do that for the sake of amortising the cost of a robot dog, necessarily. But uh, it's interesting just watching Canine. I was trying to dis uh, to disengage my brain from the knowledge that yes, he's joining and he will become a fixture of mm. Doctor Who for for the next you know few years, 
and just thinking, you know, he, he works very nicely just in the context of this story. It, gives, it mm. does give him a lot to do, and it's very nicely, um, so yeah, nicely, nicely worked out as a, you know, as a one-off interesting character. The only thing that's slightly jarring about K-9 and to some extent Leela is that they become sort of, you know, a science fiction staple of, you know, a, a gun battle. So as soon as everything, anything gets a bit tough, you sort of send Leela and K-9 off to start shooting people, which, mm. it, I mean, maybe Doctor Who was always a bit like that with, what with Unit and, and so on, but... but you know, we we always pretend that it wasn't, and that mm. it's all about the Doctor outwitting them with his you know terribly clever ideas. Was um did anyone else notice Tom Baker being grumpy towards Leela? Is is that part of the script, or was that Tom Baker being grumpy? I think the latter. It's not as bad or as obvious as it is in Horror Fang Rock, is it? But uh, mm. <laughs> well, <laughs> he won't look at her when he's directing his lines. Oh, <laughs> oh dear. Who was your fa- what was your favourite monster, Louise Jameson? <laughs> Tom Baker. Has anyone done any research into what order these stories were recorded in? Because I have yes. this memory that they were out of order. They are indeed and, um, out I, of order. I forgot to look it up, but I have... The, the extent of my research is to look at the production code and, and assuming that they were recorded in production code order, I think I've been able to recreate yes. the... Uh, Psychodrama. So, tell me more, Richard. <laughs> Well, I th- no, I think I think fundamentally exactly what you're going to say, so say it. Well, look, if I'm right there, <laughs> Invisible Enemy is the first one to be recorded. Yeah. Which means if K-9 hadn't been... Uh, K-9 was a late-minute addition to the regular cast... Yeah, they've got horror of Fang Rock to think about it. They've had to rewrite everything <laughs> following it. So mm. the next one, the second story to be recorded is Horror of Fang Rock, so whether or not that was always intended to open the season... I think it must have been because of the um, co- contact lens. It was the, it was the thing. vampire thing, wasn't it originally? Oh, of course. Is that why it was pushed back because they needed the you know the replacement for the vampire story? Well, plus also really it was recorded in Birmingham, so I think the whole thing got muck, mucked up. Yeah. Hmm. So we're starting with Invisible Enemy, where late in the day they decide to keep on K nine. They never got Horror of Fang Rock, which is not going to, which is before, so it doesn't yeah. need to be in it. Then Sunmakers yeah. is third, which in which has quite a large part, but that's written by the script editor Holmes, so he would have been able to yeah. adapt his own script at short notice. Then we get Image of the Fendal, recorded fourth, shown third, where K9 hardly features, does he? Mm, can't remember him Fire much. Around. Been a while, but no, I don't remember him. And then for the last couple, Anthony Reed has taken over. Yeah. And I guess by that point. There's enough leeway, enough lead time to get K9 in. It's almost hmm. plausible, yeah. Aha. Uh-huh. Well, there you go. Directed by Derek Goodwin. I mean, obviously enjoyed it so much that he never came back. <laughs> yes, mm. quite. Yes. <laughs> yes, he's not. Yes, he doesn't really make much of an impression, does he? Like quite a number of um, Williams era directors. Hmm. Hmm. Don't know where he found them. It's. It's not. Badly, I don't know. It's, it's not jarringly bad no. direction. There's a, there's a few. There's a few. It's something nice new to Doctor Who. It's a thankless task to to lend them with something like this for their first story. Mm. I think that's what yeah. tends to scupper some people. Yes, and I think all the you know and the battles are you know the because there is a lot of zapping and la- laser fights and so on, um, mm. which are and I guess it's a limited limited to technology mm. of the time that the 
that the lasers laser fights happen by virtue of like small lights that come on and then someone or you know or someone points a gun and and a, a blaze of light comes on on the person that's been hit rather than you actively seeing any kind of beam mm. which is <laughs> scientifically for what you know if we if you want to play that game it's probably more credible that that's yeah that's what it would be more like but yeah it's um it i think it costs some dynamism to the scenes compared to actually having beams shooting around all over mm. the place uh, so there's certainly stuff where it's a bit hard to read how how what what exactly is going on, just because you don't know where the where the beam is coming from and going to. Yeah. What happened to the um, the toxin that the doctor was going to chuck all over the swarm on Titan? One one minute it was one second it was in his hand. Yeah. I mean, did Lowe shoot it? That that was a sort of jump. I rewatched yes. that a couple of times and mm. I still couldn't fathom what had happened. No. He had to tell us that he'd lost mm. it, didn't he, later on. Oh, you think that's bad? You should have seen this story the way, the way I first, well, second <laughs> saw it in the 80s when it, it was one of the first things I saw as an off-air Australian recording. Right. When a friend of mine at school came into possession of a load of them. And it's, yeah, it's all the, everything you've heard about the way they edit these things uh, to within an inch of their life is true. The, the cliffhanger, is it episode one where Leela throws a knife into somebody's back? It's almost... yes incomprehensible. So between the story being cut to ribbons to take out the most harmless moments of violence and sarcastic commentary from the continuity announcer of the end credits. <laughs> Good heavens, what a horrible monster. <laughs> well, well <laughs> and so forth. She has a... Uh, I thought I'd just, um, I thought I'd just chip in with some Australian a, commentary. A, I, think <laughs> I think it's in the final episode where they're having a gunfight in the, in the common room or something like that on Titan. And... One mm. second, Leela's chucking a knife at someone, and then she suddenly has a gun in her hand from someone. There's all, there's, I don't, I don't normally spot loads and loads of things all the way through a story like that. But there's a lot of things like that where it's just not got picked up mm. by the by the director and the, mm. and the producers. Yeah. And that, it, it is a good story. It, perhaps it was over ambitious, but there's lots of little naff things like that in it that that really should have got picked up that are annoying. Hmm. Mm. Well, there you go. There you go. I just wanted to bring up one other Does thing, which will end. So now, <laughs> which will actually bridge uh, just just in terms of gunfights and things. Uh, I just wanted to say, you know, one of the first things that struck me is why the hell have they got guns? Yeah, why the hell have they got a gun in the first place on this? Yeah. On what's ostensibly a um a crew ship changing a roster on a, you know, we have the dialogue is selling us a. Fairly nuts and bolts approach to, you know, space travel. You know, people reaching, you know, trying to reach out and extend across the solar system mm. and so on. It's just like, who are you going to shoot? And um, and that is, in fact, a point that, uh, lo and behold, immediately um, presents itself at the start of Waters of Mars, as mm. well, when the Doctor gets a gun pulled on him, and you think, why have you bought a gun? That's a good point. Hmm. Hmm, well made. Hmm. And the other link, of course, is these are much... We were craning around for, for virus-based stories, but these are both set in remote human colonies, aren't they? On desolate, mm. rocky worlds. Yeah. Within the solar system. Yeah. Mm. Within the solar system, yeah. I mean, yes. Could they be any more similar? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
The only thing that Water to Mars lacks is a prawn that's ready to spawn. <laughs> yeah, and Russell calls himself a fan. He should have known that that was the surefire way to, to success. <laughs> mm. Well, who wants to start on Waters of Mars? Okay, well, I'll, I'll wade in. Yeah, I've, I enjoyed that. I've, I went into it thinking, oh, yeah, it's, I probably haven't watched it since since broadcasts again and yeah it was it was interesting because I, I went into it and started off thinking okay it's something of a retread of um the impossible planet satan pit as a greatest hit and that's a story i've got a lot of time for but probably more for the gothic trappings of that than necessarily the nuts and bolts hard sci-fi sort of elements to it and i started i started off thinking well this is just going to be the impossible planet and the Satan pit without, without Gabriel Wolf down a hole. Mm. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it's going to be space space under siege, but you're not going to have the um the joy of the the ood and you know because you know the flood and knots, yeah, don't work. But I the the more I watched it, the more I got drawn into it by you know by Lindsay Duncan and by to be honest the whole cast. I mean, yeah, there's you'd probably point to some weak links, but. It's interesting because it's a story that relies on, you know, the fact that it has to rely on the Doctor's inaction throughout. Mm. It's very interestingly, yeah, it's it's Absolutely. an interestingly posed thing, and that the the whole thing it has to it has to do a good job of actually making us care for and relate to these to this crew of characters. Mm. And by the time, you know, it's about it felt like about fifteen minutes. It probably is less than that, but the you know the bit where Basically, Tennant is walking away from it, and you know the whole, the whole climax of it in terms of you know gradually picking them off one by one, of you know the majority of the crew apart from the couple of Stooges at the start. Yeah. Um, that just plays out, and it's you're seeing it from Tennant's point of view, but you're reliant on you know we've got to engage with those characters, and I was, I was you know thoroughly sucked into it, really. Um, it went up a lot in my estimation or in my recollection. Yeah, it yes, it definitely starts as one thing and ends as something else, doesn't it? And I think both halves are equally good. And I hadn't really appreciated quite how good it was as a piece the first time around, possibly because it threw me for a curveball with the change of tone. But, I mean, it starts off as one of the best horror stories mm. we've had in Doctor, mm. I think. It's genuinely... I find it genuinely unnerving mm. in a way that I very rarely do with Doctor Who. Mm. I uses some, um, very often Doctor Who has good, unnerving, horrific ideas on paper, mm. but doesn't, either can't or won't follow through because it can't, you know, there's a limit how scary it's allowed to be. But they mm. use the same directorial tricks here as they would if they were making this as a proper horror film. Mm. And there's one little moment, uh, at the moment of the first possession, I can't remember the character's name, sorry, the first chapter gets possessed. Hmm. He's in the background, yeah. yes. going at his business while the character in the foreground is talking to him, facing us. Yeah. And um, the way we first know something is wrong is just through something very subtle, movement. Yes. He's hmm. moving in an unnatural way. Uh, it's just quite a common horror. I'm going to say trope again. Sorry. Hmm. Oh, they did it in the um, in it chapter two fairly recently, and it <laughs> it made me squeal in the cinema watching it, mm-hmm. and it had almost the same effect here. So. That was really very freaky. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. following through, the, the makeup is also very good. So yes, proper horror. But then, mm-hmm. as you say, quite early on, we introduced the gimmick of the Doctor knowing 
He, he, he often knows what's going to happen, but we've never seen him seen it affect him the way it does here. And we, we spend half the story wondering why he's mm. reacting this way. And then as to the explanation, it's, it's all about the drama, as you've already explained. It's very effective dramatically. But we also get a rather good science fiction idea concept introduced the first time in Doctor Who, that of the fixed point in time. Mm. Mm. So really, it's a win-win-win for me. Mm. Mm. And the through line of um, Lindsay Duncan's character holds it all together. Mm. Yeah, if only um, t- they thought of that in um, Day of the Daleks rather than the Blinovich time limitation. Uh, <laughs> or limitation effect, whatever it was, then, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I feel like I can, I can see it. When they explain a fixed point in time, I'm picturing some some nebulous web of timelines with which can be bent and stretched, mm. but they, like gravity... When you've seen a representation mm. of gravity um, curving, space-time mm. curving around a massive object, I f- feel like these fixed points in time are, are just stuck there and everything else has to bend and shape mm. I'm imagining a, a, one of those large sort of macrame um, potholder things, you know, the, as you're describing <laughs> it. With that, that also works. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm going to say uh, that it's pretty much exactly the same thing I, I say every time I watch uh, a Doctor Who for this podcast, which is, I haven't seen this one since it went out, and it's better than I remember it. Oh! <laughs> I, 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 I don't know what it is about, Next. about oh. my um, my, <laughs> my memory of, of Doctor Who stories and why, why I, especially the modern ones, why I kind of didn't like them that much the first time around, and, and I think they're okay second time, but there we go. What made you think you're a fan of this program? <laughs> you seem to have hated it up until the point you started doing a podcast, and suddenly. Yeah, um, <laughs> I think. I mean, there, were, there, there, there have been there have been some stories in the new series that I've loved at the time, but there seemed to be an awful lot that I kind of was ho hum about, and then suddenly seemed to be a lot more enthusiastic about. Now, Simon, we haven't heard your view on this. The infected um, crew members. That that was genuinely frightening. I like how their mouths went crusty. That that reminded me of Ice Warriors. The way their faces went crusty. Mm. And also mm. the, the screams yeah, were really did. chilling. And at a couple of points that reminded me of Fury from the Deep with Oak and Quill. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was yes. that was really good. And that one, mm. You've all picked up on it. It was mm. fantastically well scripted and a and a story that, you know, ran all the way strong thread all the way through from the beginning to the end and just when you're wondering when they were ever going to use those guns and defending themselves, it ultimately got put to an awful use at the end. Mm. <laughs> yes. So, Giles, you compared point. it to um, Satan Pit. Mm. Another one that sort of... Uh, what other stories does it remind me of? Oh, you know, I can't remember the name of it. What was the one with the ghosts in the underwater... In the, was there an underwater base? In oh, yeah, Before the Flood, you mean? Yeah. Oh, yes, then, yeah. Mm. But what I'm, Toby Whithouse. I can't. I know there are other examples. You'll be able to help me all because you're more awake than I am. <laughs> but what we have here is is a, a twist on Base Under Siege, and it hasn't got its own nicknames. I think we need to think it up. But it's the it's the Base Under Siege from within. It's the enemy within, isn't mm. it? The, the, mm. We're trapped, and the monsters in here with us. Yes. Mm. Which um, mm. I always think back to Horror Fang Rock as one of my yes. favourite examples of mm. that. Yes. Terence. Well, I guess um, it's the thing, and yeah. Yes, indeed, absolutely. Mm. It's the thing, isn't it? Okay, mm. it's the yeah. thing. <laughs> so the the name for this subgenre is Doctor Who rips off the thing. <laughs> yeah. 
It reminds me, actually, of uh, Hugh Fernley Whittingstall's web uh, vegetable patch when he discovers <laughs> that the uh, the slugs, I think, are, the eggs of the slugs are already in the manure that he spread all over it. Oh, God, <laughs> yeah. That was horrific, wasn't it? it was just a nightmare fuel. <laughs> uh. God, I wet myself that time. <laughs> Munching through his lettuces. <laughs> no. Yes, I mean... It's um the trouble when often when you're watching a new series story, you do have to bear in mind. We didn't have to bear in mind, but you can't help thinking as a fan. You're thinking, well, this was written by another fan, and if I see us, if something reminds me of something from Classic Who, that's mm. probably not an accident. Mm. So yeah, I mean the fear for the deep echoes that could well be not deliberate, but you know subconscious on Russell's part. The mm. fact that the makeup. Uh, we get a reference to Ice Warriors. The fact that makeup recalls Ice Warriors. I wonder if that was scripted. If that was what Russell mm. had in his head. Mm. It's possible. It's possible because he is a very visual writer. Mm. He's a very visual man. He might well have drawn a little cartoon of what he wanted in the margins, for all we mm. know. But it seems less likely that's the sort of thing that, that that sort of callback would have occurred at any other point in the production process. So it probably he probably threw that in there as a like that sort of Easter egg. Mm. You can imagine. The Icewars themselves might have been created, might have evolved as through some sort of mutation caused mm. by this virus, mm. which they then learned to live with. Yes. That's not really a very good dramatic point. So <laughs> why mm. this isn't Star Trek? We, you wouldn't actually say that in the episode, but it's something we can think mm. about mm. in the comfort of in the privacy of our own homes. <laughs> yeah, you have to wonder where all that water's coming from. I mean, they 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 seem, they can certainly vomit out enormously large quantities of it. Mm. It's space water. It's um, auto regenerative. Mm. Right. Yeah. <laughs> bigger on the inside than the outside. I don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah. Well, talking of the direction and so on. Obviously, this is um, I believe Graham Harper's sadly last contribution to the right. or late, latest mm. contribution to the series. And once again, it makes you realise. Yeah, I wouldn't say, you know, some of his new series contributions were not, didn't absolutely scream with the quality that, um, that some of his older, you know, some of you know, his stuff in the classic series really stands out um, with. But, um, but yeah, it's good to see him certainly goes out on a high in, this, mm. in that regard here, that he's really kind of feels like he's let off the leash. And did they know, did it go out on November 13th? 2009 was that the actual air date in the end or did it go out the day after was it november 15th you mean the same date that's referenced in i'm just trying to think whether whether it's um yeah because 15th of november yeah and it it was indeed it was indeed aired on 15th of november 2009 so he must have known that a good way off that was what they were going for (laughs) all the more interesting considering i think that was a sunday wasn't it and this was the first wasn't it the first Sunday airing? Oh, at least, okay. uh, at least, apart, uh, possibly aside from Christmas, Christmas specials, which obviously go out on whatever day. Um, yeah, old um, Chris Chibnall must have been watching and saying, "Ah, now there's a thing." Hmm. Now there's a thing. Now there's the thing. Yes. Though it's certainly done to rather bigger results in terms of the the ratings on this one, I think. Mm. Different time. I don't know. I, I was reminded of that rotten episode we got this year, without wishing to drag things down. <laughs> we've, we've said enough. We've said enough good things about Wars and Mars without this mm. feeling like I'm raising it with faint damnings. Yeah. 
But um, what was it called? Oh, never mind. Let's forget it existed. I mean, that was that was more base under siege, wasn't it? Because the monsters were outside. Yes. Oh, I can't remember what the hell it was all oh, about. Oh, well, from but 55. Yeah. Both, the, what those two genres, base mm. under siege and Doctor Who rips off the thing, mm. what they share is the um, the creeping menace killing off the cast one by one mm. us, and us getting to know and care about them. Mm. And this was done with great economy. In fact, I mean, it was... In the old days, the way you had to get this done was through... <laughs> entirely through dialogue and getting you to care about these people. But Russell even Russell cheats and um, puts up those little bi- biographies at the beginning mm-hmm. showing us they're all going to die. So we care even before we know who they are, which is um, turning it on its head slightly. That's... Uh, Slightly more Moffaty, actually, that extra... Yes, it's interesting. ...metatextual mm. insertion. It's interesting, because that actually, that was... You know, that that contributed to getting my back up at the start. Mm. <laughs> making me think, OK, this is a cheat, because in the Satan pit, yes you, yes, you knew what way it was going, and that they were going to be picked off one by one. In that case, I like the characterisation, and I mean, obviously, you know, it's, at least if rumours are to be believed Russell had more than a hand <laughs> in um <laughs> more than a hand mm. in in that particular script in the end um so it was certainly so perhaps this was just him thinking well, well I, may as well, I may as well do the same thing and um, <laughs> yes get credit for but he's it. also take he's credit also for it this time something different yes yeah because mm. nobody likes to repeat themselves and mm. rather than just having you think or oh, who's going to be who's going to survive at the end mm which is the usual way to build up tension. This time, he starts with the premise that they're all going to no die. No one's going to survive. And yeah. then the tension is, surely you're not going to go through with that, are you? Mm. Because, of course, there are stories where every, everybody... Just this once rose, everybody dies. Mm. Like um, <laughs> like my favourite horror of Fang Rock, which is very mm. dark for the, yes. for the 70s. Yeah. And here, he turns it on its head. You start from the premise that they're all going to die, so it's the twist is who can... It's not just how many people can you save, but after mm. a certain point, it's... Is it... Can the Doctor save anybody? Mm. Will he have to walk away? Will he have to put his magic space-time principles above his vertical humanity? Mm. Isn't it kind of semi-sequel to um, Fires of Pompeii? Yes, yes, yeah. He's he's assuming that he can't save anybody because because history. Mm. And Donna says, well, hang on a minute, take a step back. What difference is it going to make? Who's going to miss... You can... Is that where the line comes from? You can't save everybody, but you can save somebody. Only better. <laughs> Does mm. he say that? And so Something like I, that, I was I waiting for a callback to that because he's mm. already um, mm. he's already been in the same position once. Mm. Yeah. Uh, well, we do have a mention of it, and and we do. We have, did. Yeah. Oh, I missed that bit. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, there's definitely there definitely is a mention that he has that tenant in dialogue with. Yes, Pompeii, with, Adela- yeah. with Adelaide. Do you mean with the bit mentions. at the end where we hear some various voiceovers? Mm. Some of that's no, yeah, no, okay. te- no. Tennant discusses it with with Adelaide. I think in the bit over the oh, when, he does. The, when they're looking at the ice reservoir when he opens up to her and you know which I'll probably refilling my glass at that point. Mm. But it, that's um that reminded me of somewhat of pre pre minded, <laughs> is that a word of uh, <laughs> of Vincent and the Doctor that thing of you know. You're going to die anyway, so why don't I? Yeah, and in this case, tell you. In in Vincent, it has you know, he actually has mm. the nerve to you know, it goes one step further in terms of actually showing, showing him his future or his his legacy. I I always enjoy those because that still feels fairly fresh. They never did anything along those lines in the old series, and no, no, as long as they don't 
flog it into the ground. Mm. Yeah. I think it's always a good avenue of an interesting moral dilemma. And and when you mix the moral dilemma with sound logic, mm. I don't say sound science because it's not really science, is it? But as mm. long as the internal logic of why you can and can't do these things is well thought through, that's when it's at its best. Mm. I think Pompey's referred to as a fixed point in time. I think that might come up. Oh, is that where it comes from? Okay. I think it comes up in that. It must come up in that story. I'm sure this story wasn't the first time we'd heard about fixed points in time. Interesting. I'd, I, I just assumed it was because he makes such a big deal out of mm, it. But, um, yeah. But you're right. But I mean, Baron Wright is exactly the same point that we that occurs in Fires of Pompeii, I mm. guess. It'd be a bit weird not to have brought it up there. But I don't, you know, I, I, I wouldn't criticise him for repeating it here because, again, you're playing to a different audience from the weekly show because this was ostensibly a special mm. and okay it's not it's not Christmas special where we really have to think we're getting in a few million people that wouldn't you know only watch Doctor Who once a year but still I think you don't blame them for reiterating that and it was a year and a half later after all it wasn't it wasn't yes. it's hard to remember that but of course yeah season four, four was 2008 and this was fag end of 2009 mm. it seems to me at the end, when the suicide happens, that it's it's a big step for Adelaide to take, in that, you know, she's she's given no sign up to that point that she's anything other than a survivor, and you know, so it's interesting that she sort of decided in the course of that sort of minute and a half dialogue with the Doctor outside in the street that this is the way to solve the problem, and she acts decisively, I suppose, to do it. And she's—I suppose she's got to hope that it's that it's enough to solve the problem. That that she dies, regardless of where it is, is going to fix things. Mm. Yeah, I, I think it's possibly the only slightly weak, contrived point in the episode for me because the half of the part of her decision, which is based on the logic the doctors outlined, that the whole, not just her own descendants, but the whole future of humanity might change. Mm. Mm. If she doesn't die, that makes sense. Yes. But she seems to give equal weight to the idea that the Doctor, having made this decision, is a problem. And she's only just met him. When he says, I'm the Time Lord Victorious, and she's the Time Lord Victorious, is, is wrong, that cannot be. She repeats it far too easily, that, that phrase, back to him. Mm. I think she's becoming a bit authorial there. She knows rather more than she should, and is taking a rather more... Yeah, you know what I mean? A, mm. a st- a stance that's slightly outside, above and beyond what her character should be or could be feeling at that mm. point. But there you go, nothing's yeah. perfect. Yeah, I mean, and I feel also that that the, that whole thing escalates very quickly. I mean, I, you know, you you can sort of see the madness happening inside Tennant's Doctor. So, I, I mean, I can sort of see how it comes about, but how he goes from from. No, I mustn't intervene. No, I mustn't intervene. Oh, I am going to intervene, and now I'm all powerful I and like mighty. It. <laughs> and then, equally within about fifteen seconds, oh no, it, I've done the wrong thing, and everything's a disaster. It it is a it's a remarkably sudden change in both directions, I suppose. But I mean, you know, dramas like that, it is a bit mm. um, a bit heightened, isn't it? Yes, well, I suppose as as you know, if you consider where. It, you know what's the decision that's been made? Yes, it it comes over very fast on the screen. But on the other hand, if if he's decided to chuck all of his principles out of the you know 
how you know all these ideas that he's lived by hmm. and assumptions he's made about the governing principles of the universe and so on i guess one can forgive him for possibly going a bit um a bit mad with the power of the, hmm. the idea that um the idea that well you know why the hell did i let adric die um, <laughs> Mm. as a for instance um but you know there's been plenty of plenty of cases where he's felt like you know it wasn't his you know he wasn't able to intervene for one reason or another and then equally equally getting you know going going from that high as it were to a um you know to to suddenly being suddenly being pulled up very short and realize you know realizing that it's an utter disaster what you've just done it's um yeah I guess it's a bit overplayed, perhaps, but um, but then Tennant's Doctor is prone to big mood swings, isn't he? And to some extent, also, he's he's made it more of a fixed point in time by telling her all about what's going to happen, assuming that she's going to die anyway, so it doesn't really matter. And then mm. having saved her, you know, he's sort of he's already compounded the problem, I suppose. Yes, silly Doctor. <laughs> well, I mean, it's easy to stand on the outside and criticise someone else, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Some people have, you know, got whole podcast careers on that uh, <laughs> basis. Any more parallels between the two stories apart from the V word? I mean, it's interesting. The whole virus, the whole virus thing, is based on one line of dialogue, and it's even a little bit, you know, it's, it's, nobody says it's definitively a virus. The flood. The flood itself, mm. of course, is only mentioned about once as well. But uh, they sort of refer to it and said, well, it, you know, it could be a, some kind of virus type thing um, <laughs> in the water. Mm. I think I think it works because, again, there's that sort of that chain reaction. You've got the same thing in, in Invisible Enemy where, you know, one person gets it and then they pass it and pass it. And before you know where you are, it's... It's become a big problem, and I guess this this too. It's just it's just one bit of water that you know somebody fails to change the filter properly, and they get and then mm. one th- one thing leads to another. Yep, with a bit of re-editing, it could be a very useful public information film, couldn't it? <laughs> Indeed, <laughs> it's quite a Quatermassy actually. It's just occurring to me just seeing you talk about it like that. I think in that I was just thinking about the fact that we don't. Yes, we have. Monster, you know, we have, you know, like the, the transformed people are uh, ersatz monsters, but um, we don't have a. I was just thinking about that scene when you, it's when the glacier starts cracking open, and mm. you don't get any, you don't get any revelation of what's, what was really behind it, or anything like that, which you're almost cued to expect when you get, you know, when you get some scene of something vast cracking open. You're expecting something is going to emerge from it, but instead you, yeah, instead it's just it's in the water, which I think is Rus- quite nice. Russell near-ish. often does that. Yeah, at his best, Russell picks up an idea, the same as Midnight, really. Mm. Yeah, I prefer that to you know the centre of the Earth has a massive spider living in it. You know what I mean? Mm, yes. Big, yeah. Big ideas and little ideas and mm. simple ideas. Simple ideas are always better than overcomplicated ideas. Mm. It's in the water. Yeah. The monsters look like water. They spread through water. I mean, again, sort of thing that Moffat made his career on. Hmm. 
Yes, here's the line. A viral life form held in the ice for all these years. It's a sort of speculation rather than a, a, a statement, as it sounds like I've just read it out there. Hmm. See, Doctor Who can be anything, can't it? One week, it, if the story needs, if it has a more scientific feel to it, it can be a virus. Another week, it could be something fantastical, like a, hmm. a thought-based life form, hmm. or a life form for another dimension, or, or an invisible enemy. Hmm. The prawn that is within us all. <laughs> <laughs> There's even that slightly mystical sequence in it with her meeting the Dalek as a child. Yes, yeah. Well, I mean, you could draw a parallel with a slightly mystical sequence of them finding a prawn in the middle of the mind-brain <laughs> interface, but... but <laughs> <laughs> That's a curious... It does have a mystical air to it, as filmed, but of course it's given a very rational scientific explanation. The Daleks have time travel, as time travels themselves, mm. as rec as um, dangerous and reckless and destructive as they are, wouldn't muck around with a fixed point in time. Mm. Mm. And it reminds one of a line from um, Remember the Daleks, where the Doctor says the same thing. Even mm. the Daleks, ruthless as they are, would mm. know better than to make such a yeah. Radical alteration to the times timelines, yeah, yeah. which is kind of a throwaway line in Remembrance, but um, mm. oh, both yeah. occasion. Cute robot. They both got a cute robot. Oh, oh, true. Yes, you've only just thought of that. Mm. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm impressed that you're still able to <laughs> come up with new ideas at this time of night. <laughs> yeah, they do. Yes, and there is a canine reference in Gadget Gadget. Mm. There's a canine reference in Waters of Mars, isn't there? Yeah. Doesn't he uh, say... Oh, My goodness, it's overflowing. Dog is... Yeah, <laughs> dog, yeah. <laughs> dogs are different. <laughs> I'm surprised Bob Baker wasn't uh, expecting some kind of payment there. Mm. Yeah. I did wonder if the line, it's a bit flimsy, isn't it, was added on set when they realised that the monster, was, that the robot was wobbling alarmingly, that, mm. like that thing out of Santaran experiment. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> he does like a big corridor, doesn't he? That's that's a really yeah. big. That felt very reminiscent of a lot of other things, and I couldn't think of all of them. I think there's definitely one in Runaway Bride, but there are lots mm -hmm. of. Was it all filmed in the um, corridors underneath the at the atrium of the Millennium Stadium or whatever in Cardiff? Isn't that where I you used to film a lot of that sort of thing? Paul Graham Harper being asked to make scenes of people running look interesting mm. uses a technique that I've only ever really seen in in. Early new, the early new Who era. I've never seen it anywhere else. It's sort of cutting between torso and and feet shots of people running to try and generate some excitement, and not really mm. <laughs> getting away with it. <laughs> I just just getting lots of coverage and then editing it f to try and generate, build up some some pace, and mm. not really. No running isn't. Yes, I think I'm thinking of the bit with the segue from mm. Runaway Bride, aren't I? Oh yes. yes, yeah. But you know, I can see why he puts these bits in. Mm. In old Doctor Who, when you got from had to get from base A to base B past the monster, you'd just walk down a seven foot long stretch of <laughs> of BBC Studio. Mm. So um, he's trying to avoid it feeling mm. pedestrian like that. Any other thoughts, Simon? No, I th I think that's nicely summed up and compared, Richard. I thought it was quite funny at the end of Waters of Mars you get this huge great 2009 that comes, you know, it's like this and now 
Christmas 2009. <laughs> you know, it, we're, 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 we're sort of coming to the conclusion, but now it just, oh, yeah, mm. whatever, <laughs> 11 years ago or mm. 10 and a half. But yeah, it, it, I, I guess it was all building to a big thing um, in a month or two's time from the, from the airing of this. Mm, absolutely it reminded me of quite yes I, I have to say i kind of watched that you know watched that i thought blimey i haven't seen end of time since since broadcast either <laughs> i quite fancy them <laughs> we should call it fancy i haven't it. seen this since since it was broadcast podcast really shouldn't we that's mm. <laughs> 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 um yeah, yeah no i forgot you know god god it was massive wasn't it mm. and that was they they just took over Took over the BBC that Christmas. Blimey. Uh, we shall not see that. We mm. shall not see the lake again. June Whitfield it had, didn't or it? Perhaps June Whitfield. Oh, yes, of course it did, yeah. Can you imagine? Mm. On Doctor Who? Yeah. One slight downer, though. I noticed um, old um, Adelaide mentions at one point the fact that they've, they've, they've gone through, you know, before, before going off to Mark, you know, before reaching Mars, the fact they've gone humanity's gone through 40 years of chaos mm. and you kind of wind the clock back and think oh, yeah mm. there's some what? Yeah, that was another point actually that reminded me of Orphan 55 and I'm not going to be gratuitously <laughs> rude about it this time, <laughs> but you must remember that at least you remember the title extraordinarily com- lengthy and on the nose speech the Doctor gives at the end mm. whereas this gets the same point across much more economically mm. about about the uh, yeah the dangers of rampant environmental destruction, mm. and it's in terms of the plot mm. they had to go to Mars. Yeah, mm. well, I mean, you know, we could have had a, a bit of David Tennant at the end saying, "And remember, children, don't play with fixed points at time, because <laughs> this is the sort of thing that happens." But perhaps not. Excellent. Well, I think I think you know we 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 can we can keep on dribbling on for hours but we've probably come to the end of anything that our listeners will want to hear so uh, all if you can go on pluck out the best 30 seconds and tweet it and maybe it'll go viral <laughs> yeah it's 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 ever been um a, a pleasure and, and and you know of course something of a therapy uh, talking to you chaps <laughs> uh, this evening so so thanks for your presence here and um thanks to whoever suggested we should do a virus special because it's been quite fun and next time it's uh, it's dinosaurs, wasn't it? Your idea, Giles, the deserted London special or something? Oh yes, yeah. Dinosaur invasion struck me as a um, yeah. Also strange, <laughs> strangely appetite. We go with turn left for the sort of uh, everything's going wrong um, special. <laughs> but anyway, we'll 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 work that out. Hmm. Good. Okay. Well, I suppose we should say goodbye to our listeners in a in a usual faintly shambolic way. Ta-da. Goodbye, listeners. Cheerio. Bye. So, um, <laughs> no, no, I, 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 I've just sorry. I, I've got a terrible. Here comes the fun bit, kids. I've got a terrible joke to start us off with, but I'd forgotten what, how it went. So I'm going to have to. So, but now I've worked it out again. So here we go. So everyone, the invisible enemy.
was it a prawn cracker or was it something you didn't really want on? Bumptish. Do you know what? I've lost count of the number of times I've heard you give a joke a build-up like that. But for <laughs> once, you came through. Well <laughs> oh dear, well, he would, it wouldn't have worked if I'd said it the way that I thought I was going to say it about a minute ago. And then I realised <laughs> what the joke was. Hey, hey-ho. Uh, I, I was talking with, with uh, my mate Stephen Schapansky. Actually, I was going to say it was my <laughs> mate Stephen Schapansky, and then it turns out he's your mate Stephen Schapansky. So I, so I said to him, well, you know, so, so here there I was with my, with my mate, Paul Morris and he was trying to encourage me to talk to Phil Morris and he said oh yeah and, and you know I was talking with Phil with my mate Paul Morris um you know chatting with Paul Vanessa so I thought oh well then that man he gets everywhere 